is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Steve Bannon, longtime ally and former advisor to President Trump, known for being bombastic and defiant. But those two characteristics, well, it didn't serve him well in front of a federal jury. He was found guilty of contempt charges for defying a congressional subpoena issued by the January 6th committee. We'll go in depth into what this means for others connected to Donald Trump. Another January 6th committee hearing wraps up with lots of people wondering if and when the Justice Department will file any kind of charges against Trump or those closely connected to him. And a business group is speaking out about the likely return of an indoor mask mandate in L.A. County, saying it could be a big economic setback. We'll look at how public health is trying to limit COVID and monkeypox at the same time. And polio is back with us in the U.S. Don't look at ticket prices for some Bruce Springsteen concerts next year. Ticketmaster's new pricing plan is putting them in the thousands of dollars. The FCC taking action to try to stop all the auto warranty calls that everybody gets. And uh, if you like this show, there's somebody who's uh, responsible for a lot of that whose name is not Mike or Charles. It's Ken. And he is leaving us today after seven years, so we are going to give him a send-off. Suppose I don't like this show. Well. I mean, it's possible. I don't know why, but Then stop listening. No. <laughs> Listen angrily. <laughs> we start, though, with uh, Steve Bannon and the guilty verdicts. Back with us is Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia. Steve, thanks for being back with us. So uh, what does the future in terms of, uh, I don't know, prison have in store for Steve Bannon? Okay, first off, my name's Gene. You called me Steve. I'm not insulted. <laughs> That's number one. Um, and uh, uh, what's in store for him? Um, let's go right to the sentencing. The sentencing is, uh, I think, in October. <clears throat> and because of the two guilty verdicts that were returned from the, uh, from the jury in less than two, uh, three hours, uh, he's facing two counts. And each count it has a mandatory minimum of 30 days. He has a conviction for not producing documents. He has a conviction for not appearing to give testimony. So the issue at the at the sentencing in October or uh, later this uh, year will be whether the judge makes those uh, minimums, the 30-day minimums, consecutive, which means one stacks on another, or makes them concurrent, which means they run the same time. So he's facing a minimum of 30 to 60 days. The maximum for each count is a year, so the judge could do consecutive or concurrent on the year. Um, Here's the problem for Steve Bannon. I don't think the judge is going to like that after he was found guilty by a jury, he went out and made comments that were extremely inflammatory, that were basically thumbing his nose at the process, and basically saying that this is all a show trial and that it's meaningless. I don't think that's going to help him at his sentencing. And I sort of feel sorry for his attorney, Evan Corcoran, uh, because uh, I worked with him a little bit uh, back in the day. Uh, He's a phenomenal attorney. He uh, did the best he could with the cards that were dealt him. I don't think his attorney um, is going to enjoy having those comments by Steve Bannon reminded uh, or repeated by the prosecutors at the sentencing. What does this do in terms of the committee and how people think of this and and what 
could be so important to thumb your nose at this and go to prison rather than talk to them about Donald Trump? Well, here's the thing. The committee members and all committees in the House and the Senate are probably privately applauding this because the the verdicts of guilty against Steve Mannon reinforce the view you cannot ignore a court-ordered subpoena and you cannot ignore a congressional subpoena. Too often, congressional subpoenas are not given the true force of the law that court-ordered subpoenas are. And a lot of times people will will you know negotiate and not give as give them as much respect this now is a bit of deterrence that if you don't have a valid reason not to comply if you don't have a valid reason not to go and give testimony we're going to go ask the justice department to institute an indictment or a charge this is a misdemeanor and we're going to take you to court and possibly put you in jail that's deterrence So I think it's adding a little teeth to all the House committees, even the Republicans, if they uh, take over the House or the Senate uh, in January next year. So the Republicans are probably liking this, too, because they're going to use this case against any people who try to defy subpoenas when they if and when they take power. Bannon's attorney didn't really put on a case. In fact, he didn't put on a case. Uh, Was that a mistake? No, 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 no. Uh, as I said, Evan Corgan's an outstanding attorney. He's laying the groundwork for an appeal. He made arguments for defenses, and the judge basically rejected him. So he's already made the record. And what he said is, uh, when he was asked if they're going to put on a case, Your Honor, we're not putting on a case because you rejected all of my defenses. So he made a record for appeal that the court made horrible rulings, he's going to say, on on key defenses. One of them was on uh, whether executive privilege was invoked by the president, the former president, um, whether the uh, whether the element of intent, willfulness was was properly given to the jury or properly explained by the prosecutors. So he has some issues on appeal. Um, I would bet that they're not going to prevail, but he does have arguments on appeal. Gene Rossi, attorney and former federal prosecutor, Eastern District of Virginia. The January 6th committee further laid out its case against former President Trump in a primetime hearing Thursday night. It looked at what the former president did on 187 minutes that day between his call for his supporters to march to the Capitol and when he told them to go home. The Justice Department, though, is yet to act on the evidence being presented, at least against the former president or his close associates. Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Henry, thanks for being with us. So uh, I know early on uh, when we had different guests on the show and we would ask them, uh, what do you think the purpose of the the committee uh, is going to be? Uh, And the answer we almost always got was, well, they're not going to really make up anyone's minds. People have kind of made up their minds one way or the other. Uh, So they're doing it for the historical record, and they're doing it more importantly, we were were told, to, uh, in effect, have a blueprint for what the Justice Department, in their view, should be doing. Is that what's happening, and are they doing it the right way? I think um, there's a couple of things that's going on. One, uh, aside from the historic record, I think uh, there's uh, attempt to make it impossible for Donald Trump to come back through the electoral process. 
to besmirch his name and impugn his character to a degree that people won't support him again. Um, and I think there's also the possibility that what they're trying to do, in addition to providing evidence to the Department of Justice, but is tee up the alternative of uh, yet another impeachment. It's not clear that you can't impeach somebody once they are out of office for acts they've committed in office. And when you saw last night the attempt to bring in McCarthy and McConnell, that didn't really support a narrative against Trump, but it would put political pressure on them if there was another impeachment proceeding that was started with respect to January 6th. How realistic do you think those things are, though? I mean, they're not showing this on Fox and to the make up their minds points. I mean, lots of people are not going to change no matter what you show them. Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult to change Republicans' minds, but I also think it'll be very difficult to get the Department of Justice to move on this, because it's one thing to think that you have a case that, uh, on the balance of the evidence that somebody would think would lead to conviction. But the Department of Justice has to think about the appellate process, and I think you have to think about the thorny question of how does one deal with the president's official acts during an office. It's usually understood that the president, the only remedy for president's acts in office is the impeachment process. Does that change when he's out of office? They have to consider a lot of very difficult legal questions in addition to the question of whether they can prove a criminal case against him. And that's not as hard, not as, not as uh, hard and fast as a lot of people think it will be. I'll give you a head start on a future column. Uh, two years from now, what do you think you're going to be writing about this? Gosh. Two years from now, so that puts me at the end of 2024. Yeah. Uh, well, I think one thing I'll be writing about it is whether or not this uh, derailed president comes back it, because by this point in 2024, we'll know. It'll either have derailed it, either through the primary or through an indictment or uh, through some other method, or he will have overcome it. Um, and I think right now it's doing him serious damage. It's not killing him with his face, but uh, you know, the, the fact is, if there was an up and down vote on Donald Trump uh, in this country, people would vote no. And that has to do with what's been going on the last few weeks. Henry Olson, Washington Post columnist, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Coming up, some Bruce Springsteen fans upset over outrageous ticket prices for his upcoming concerts. And we say goodbye to our boss, soon to be former boss, who guided us from AM to FM. Right now, though, it looks like we are a week away from the indoor mask mandates here in L.A. County with the COVID cases rising, but uh, not without pushback. L.A. County Business Federation says it's a bad idea. Could hurt the businesses. Tracy Hernandez is with us, CEO of the L.A. County Business Federation. Tracy, thanks for being here. So I imagine a lot of this has to do with the fact that uh, of the counties uh, and others are in the high transmission category up and down the state, but we would be the only one with the masks. You know, that's correct. And and really, you know, this isn't about choosing between lives and livelihoods. You know, we really need to have a discussion around educating and empowering people to make smart choices. And so we at BizFed, you know, we've got about 400,000 business owners, large and small throughout the county, are, are calling on to be a part of the solution for the county to enact a mask advisory versus a mask mandate. Was it really that tough, though, during the previous mandate? I, I mean, I remember the discussion going into it, and there were these concerns that especially small businesses wouldn't have the personnel to, to do that. But 
I don't know. It didn't really shape up that way. I used to go to and did go to lots of small restaurants, and they didn't seem to really have that much of a big issue. Oh, it was a huge issue. I, I, I'm glad the places you were at were calm, cool, and collected. But really, when the public will, it's it's customers and the public at large that if they don't have a will to comply, and then we have to put our employees on the front line to try to um, enforce this, um, that's where it's it's risky, it's chaotic, it's scary. And so it's not so much around can the business imply mass you know, or supply masks and for employees to wear them. But it's really the whole enforcement around everyone indoors having to have a mask on. And the county itself said they're not going to enforce it. So what's the point of doing it? Yeah, you know, I was rather- curious about that. I mean, do you yeah. do you foresee there being problems this time because people, A, they don't want to wear their masks or B, they're not going to get the message for a while. But also, if the county's not enforcing it, so what if there's just some businesses out there who lets you walk in without it anyways? Right. And, you know, it's um, we've moved so far beyond, you know, the early days when we a mandate was needed, when we didn't have vaccines, we didn't have boosters, we didn't have medications, uh, we didn't have knowledge and information. We're so far beyond that two and a half years later that people are um, well equipped, well educated to handle it. So the public will is really diminished. And in fact, you know, it's only been tried in a couple other places that we even know about and both of them quickly um, moved out of a mask mandate because there it was it was not effective. It couldn't be enforced. It was chaotic. And anything that disrupts um, business and the economy right now, you know, we're still trying to recover from COVID. But not only that, there's quite choppy waters in front of us here with inflation and with concerns. Um, about All right. So what? Market. So what? So I don't want to get into the other topics. I want to stick with this. What, what is the the uh, red line for you? Uh, and do you think the red line might be for other businesses uh, that once that's crossed, you would all be supportive of a mask mandate? There must be some line or is it a is it an emphatic no way? It's an emphatic, let's evolve with the times. We're living in an endemic. We've moved past a pandemic. And so we cannot have these constant knee-jerk. Well, I don't know where you get that from because we haven't, we haven't actually yeah. passed, passed a pandemic. But okay, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, it's I mean, not we're true, living, but go ahead. We're living, so the point is we're living with the coronavirus and many of its iterations for a long time. Um, and so what the, you know, for example, let's pay attention to the facts and the figures too, on what, what the alarm, why only is LA County alarmed? Why not all the other counties and all the other states? Because when you look at the facts right now in the hospitals in LA County, it's about 7% of the people in all hospitals are infected. And most of that 7% are there for other reasons. And they happen to be tested positive for COVID. So I would just put it back at you. And I think the public at large has already made this decision. The common sense aspect of about it is that it's not at this radical crisis level that we can't just, we're saying we want to be a part of the solution. We're good with elevating attention, education, signage, encouraging everyone to do face masking and safe distancing and so on. It's really kind of the archaic mandate in only one particular area that is just going to wreak havoc. Tracy Hernandez there, uh, CEO of the L.A. County Business Federation. Tracy, thanks. 
This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If it's not COVID that's worrying you, maybe it's monkeypox. Cases are both surging right now in the U.S. And to top it off, there's now a confirmed polio case in New York, the first in the country in nearly a decade. Our public health de- uh, department's overwhelmed with one disease after another. Dr. William Schaffner is back with us. He's a professor of preventative medicine and infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for uh, returning. Uh, so it, it does seem like kind of a plague of microbes. Uh, coronavirus, monkeypox, polio. Uh, are we equipped to, uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about public health departments, both federal, state, municipal, to deal with all this? Well, we're struggling with it, guys. Uh, There's no doubt about it because all of them have their unique demands. And uh, a couple of them, coronavirus, COVID, as well as monkeypox, have really thrown curveballs at us. They haven't behaved the way we anticipated that they would. They're spreading more widely. Uh, That polio case is an idiosyncratic event that does not pose challenges for the general population. There may be some concern uh, from the community in which that person comes, which is a religiously very conservative community that uh, often does not vaccinate the children or themselves. So that's a kind of a localized separate problem. But over the years, You know, we haven't invested very much in public health departments at the local, state, or national level. And uh, sometimes you see the impact of that when it's challenged. So let's focus in then on monkeypox, because we've been through COVID, we're still with COVID, and the uh, thing that's said about monkeypox is there didn't seem to be the urgency. There didn't seem to be a listening to the community that was wanting to get vaccinated. And now this is to a point where it's uh, getting out of people's hands and you could have squashed it early, but it didn't happen. Well, monkeypox provided some very big challenges. As I like to say, that virus didn't read the textbook. It's behaving (laughs) differently in the United States than it did uh, in West Africa. And the main way it's different is that in West Africa, the virus really presents with a quite dramatic rash dominant on the face and head, the the extremities, the arms and the legs, and even on the palms. So it's easy to recognize. And there were many, many rash lesions. So you can find the cases. However, once it got here and began spreading in the gay and bisexual community through sexual transmission, close skin-to-skin contact, There were often fewer lesions, and they were often uh, places where we wore clothing around the genitalia, around your backside, and so they were much less easy to recognize, harder to find the cases, harder to track them. And also, since this group is sometimes socially disapproved, there are cautions often in providing the names of contacts. And sometimes the contacts were indeed anonymous. And that's hard to trace cases uh, under those kinds of circumstances. All right. But but talking about tracing, I mean, have we made any progress or have we kind of backslid a bit since the earlier days of the coronavirus pandemic in terms of our ability to do contact tracing? Because it seems like some places have kind of given up. For sure. Now, let's talk about uh, COVID, because you mentioned it, and that's 
a good instance. At the beginning of the outbreak, the virus was spreading very deliberately, and we could find most of the cases and do case uh, contact tracing then and isolate individuals. Since then, the virus has changed. It's now much more contagious, and it often produces very mild infections. So it's spreading now so rapidly that actual case counts and case finding, contact tracing are not nearly as effective in curtailing the illness. Now we're focusing principally on preventing serious disease, the kind that requires you to be hospitalized. So that's where the focus is now. Dr. William Schaffner, Professor of Preventative Medicine, Infectious Diseases, Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. You might need to start saving up now, or maybe even yesterday, if you want to head to a Bruce Springsteen concert next year. It could cost you much more than a pretty penny. See, it's the prices that have got us flustered. Because some of these tickets are like four or $5,000, and this is not front row. This is like mid-range I'm, seats. I'm choking up already. All right. Uh, Ticketmaster says it's dynamic pricing, but uh, is it pricing regular fans out of the shows? Alan Cross, music journalist, radio host based in Toronto. The show Ongoing History and New Music syndicated across Canada. Alan, thanks for being here. So I don't think I like the the term dynamic pricing because it kind of seems like uh, an airplane. And when a certain amount of the cabin gets full, they go, oh, people want this flight. So let's jack up those prices. Yeah, it's the airline model. It's also the Uber surge model. This is something that they've been trying out at, at Ticketmaster, this new algorithm that looks at the amount of demand for any given show and then adjusts prices accordingly. Now, I, I understand where they're, where they're going with this. First of all, let's be very clear. No one has a right. No one is entitled to go to a concert. This is uh, it, entertainment income spent with after-tax discretionary uh, cash. So there's no reason that anybody you know, deserves to go to a, a show. This is a cut and dry, cutthroat capitalism, demand versus supply. And there's only so many seats in which to put bumps. So what they're trying to do is keep the tickets out of the hands of, of scalpers. And the important part here is that when a scalper or a secondary market seller gets a hold of a ticket and they put their premium on top of the face value of the ticket, that money does not go to the artist or the venue or the promoter or anybody who is actually involved in putting on the show. That money goes to the scalper who is basically creating profit out of nothing. That money, if there's a demand for it, should go to the people uh, who are producing the show, which is the, the artist and the promoter and, and everything else. So if you price tickets at a point that's actually market value from the beginning the theory goes that you will help eliminate scalpers and help, um, uh, you know, put put secondary sellers out of business. Isn't there anything that the performers can do? I mean, there have been cases, have there not, in the past where performers have tried to influence, uh, you know, really high ticket prices? Well, here's here's the situation: the, no promoter wants to see. Uh, be seen as gouging their fans you know and a guy like Springsteen he's made a, a, a career out of being the blue collar everyman and if he were to go to his agent and promoter and say look at I want to charge what I know I can get for every seat in the house when I go on tour in 2023 okay Bruce what's that price well I know that my fans are going to pony up you know $500 $750 $1,000 
let's look at what he did on Broadway, you know, and, and how much he charged for the, for those, uh, for those tickets. So, uh, and then he would get that money because he's worth that money to his fans, but he doesn't want to, uh, show that, that he's gouging. So Ticketmaster, which is set up as a fall guy for so much with of the music industry, they're the ones that are the, the sort of the, the firewall between the anger of the fans and the artist. Because everybody blames Ticketmaster for this. And it's really, no, it's, it's not them. They are simply selling tickets. And what they try to do in concert with the promoter, in concert with the agents, in concert with the venues, in concert with everybody that's in charge of putting on a show, of finding that sweet spot, that actual ticket price that reflects the demand in the marketplace. Can they put a cap on it, though, so it doesn't go so sky high if that algorithm gets to work? I mean, to your point about what's the value, one of my friends was joking the other day, you know, half joking and probably actually being serious at the same time, saying, you know what, uh, Beyonce's got the new album coming out at the end of the month, so I need to save my $800 because I know that's what's going to happen a couple months' time when she goes out. It's exactly what's going to happen. Now, this, from what I have read and understood, is uh, a new algorithm for Ticketmaster. And I think it kind of got a little bit out of control because we've been hearing stories about tickets three rows from the top of the arena uh, that have been selling for $5,000. Now, if, if, if you're that much the of a Bruce Springsteen fan, the house, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're that much of a Bruce Springsteen fan that you're going to spend five k on a seat way up there, well, then that's what Bruce Springsteen is worth to you. $5,000 to, to sit three rows. Nobody's, nobody's asking you. Nobody's forcing you to buy that ticket. But if, if you've got to be in the building and the supply and demand, and again, demand is really, really high. Supply is really, really small. So that's, that's what it's going to cost you. Now, what's going to be very interesting is going forward is that because if it's dynamic pricing, well, that says that prices can go down as well. So the algorithm will be looking at all the seats and all the venues and going, hmm, demand has dried up or slowed down. That means the price of the ticket should come down. So can you imagine being that person, you know, third row from the top who paid $5,000 sitting next to somebody who paid two hundred and fifty? dollars You know what I don't get is we keep hearing so much about how Americans are stressed out because of the economy. Who are all these people who can afford $5,000 seats? They're the super fans. They're the same people who will spend, you know, X number of dollars to go to, uh, you know, sit along the third baseline at a Dodger game. They're the same pe people that will spend, uh, you know, $1,500 on a bad seat to go see Hamilton. Uh, these are very, very high demand events. And people will end up, uh, uh, you know, foregoing other things so that they can be there. Now, that, that being said, there's also, of course, the, uh, you know, the one percenters or whatever you want to call them that have this kind of disposable income. There was a, a story here in, in Toronto uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, somebody uh, for their daughter uh, went to a secondary seller and paid $61,000 for a seat at a Taylor Swift show <laughs> in one of those couple of rows. Wow. I hope she appreciated it. Uh, Alan Cross, music journalist, radio host based in Toronto. The show Ongoing History of New Music uh, syndicated there across Canada. Alan, thanks. That's the most you would pay. Oh. For anybody. For anybody? I don't know. If I'm if I'm close? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe like a grand? You would. You would pay yeah, $1,000. Sure, like, but not for the, the up way upstairs. Mm-mm.
I'd, I'd want like free drinks. Yeah, it needs to, well, don't some of those come with the good stuff? Too? I don't know. I, I mean, but but five thousand for that's too much. That's too much. Not doing that. I like Bruce. You can go see him five times at one thousand dollars ticket. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Everybody's gotten one of these, the annoying spam calls. That's your auto warranty. We've been trying to reach you concerning your car's extended warranty. Usually you just hang up, uh, but some people, they do get fooled by these. You know, I get that one like four times a week. I got one last hour. Yeah. And uh, it's like, I don't even have that car anymore. (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) Well, that's why the FCC is now stepping in. It's ordering phone companies to stop carrying traffic related to robocalls about scam auto warranties. But is that going to work? John Brayold is vice president of public policy, telecommunications and fraud with the National Consumers League. John, thanks for being with us. Uh, Why do I think that the FCC in the past has tried to stop these and not very successful at it? Well, you know, robocalls have been the top complaint to the FCC for years, uh, and they've been taking steps to try and reduce robocall volumes. Uh, but unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. And for consumers like you and me, we continue to see, uh, you know, billions of these robocalls being placed to us every month. Uh, just last month, uh, there were 4.3 billion uh, robocalls placed. That's more than 144 million Per day. So while action by the FCC is uh, good in this case, um, it's not necessarily going to lead to fewer robocalls to your cell phone and mine. Is it just my imagination or do they feel like they go in phases? Because Charles, you and I were talking just off the air the other day about this. And it was like the last few weeks have been really bad for me. But like a month before, maybe I didn't really notice that many. But do they kind of come and go? Yeah, it's really a game of whack-a-mole. Uh, unfortunately, uh, so many of these robocallers are located overseas that it's really difficult to actually stop these calls before they show up on your phone. Uh, the, when the carriers or uh, shut down one group of robocallers, then you may see a dip for a couple days or a few weeks, but then very quickly they come back. Um, and that's because uh, of one very important thing. Robocalls make money. Uh, it only takes a very small percentage of people to respond to these calls for the companies that make these calls to actually show a profit. So unfortunately, that means more annoyance for you and me. Are the phone companies, though, doing all they really can do, or do they really not care as much as they like to claim they do? Well, I do think that the phone companies uh, are aware of this problem. They certainly hear from the complaints from their customers. Um, They're now subject to new federal laws and regulations that require them to put in place authentication technology that's supposed to, over the long run, reduce the volume of these calls. But like I said, that alone won't be a silver bullet. It's going to take cooperation between the phone companies, uh, the government, Um, and many other folks both in the U.S. and out to try and put a stop to this problem. Unfortunately, what that means for you and me is that we're going to keep getting these calls, and it's still going to be up to us to do things like block these calls when we receive them, to call our carrier and find out if there are blocking technologies or blocking apps that we should be using to try and reduce the volume. Um, but you know, it's not going to, none of that is going to be a silver bullet right away. Unfortunately, what is the percentage of the, something that gets labeled like scam likely when that actually works like it should, because some, at least some of mine are now showing up as scam likely instead of just some random number from someplace. Yeah. And that's because of that authentication technology, uh, I talked about that they're increasingly 
putting into place. I would say that that technology is pretty good. If you get a call on your phone and it says scam likely, don't answer it. Uh, if they really want to get in touch with you, they will leave a voicemail or send you a text message. Yeah, the ones I hate the most are the ones that have the same area code and sometimes even the first like three <laughs> numbers of your own phone number. So you think, oh, there must be somebody I know because yeah. it's almost like my number. Hello, it's your friend from elementary school. I'd like to sell you an auto warranty. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, these uh, robocallers are ingenious in trying to get you to pick up the phone because, frankly, that's what makes them money. Um, you may we've heard of consumers getting calls that like they're coming from their own phone numbers. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, caller ID and the number that shows up when you when somebody calls you uh, is not something you can depend on to know that it's a legit call. John Brayalt, uh, vice president, public policy, telecommunications and fraud with the National Consumers League. So you get you get a robocall from your own number and what you sell yourself a car warranty? I mean, buy yourself a present. <laughs> Well, every now and then, a programming genius comes along and creates an ingenious radio show. And then there's this show. Yeah. Ken Charles is the programmer who came up with the idea for KNX In-Depth. And so... This is your life. Ken Charles began life in the state of New Jersey and quickly the state and Ken realized staying there probably not a great idea. So off he moved to the warm sands of sunny Florida. And it was while in Florida that Ken had to decide upon his life's calling. There was neurosurgeon, a short order cook at a local diner, a bongo drum repairman or radio. Ken, do you remember this voice? He used to study a great deal of schoolwork and read an awful lot, so much so that... He became the best student in the entire school. Yes, Ken, that's your second grade teacher back in Florida. Uh, unfortunately, she got the names confused, so was actually talking about a different student. From college, he went on to higher education, higher in the true sense of the word, and eventually ended up in radio. Talk show host, news type person, program director, you did it all with most people saying the same thing. For the, what? Pa <laughs> for the past seven years, Ken Charles had programmed this radio station created this show and now he's leaving us so not before we subject him to just one more knx in-depth interview ken charles welcome to in-depth all right so i guess now another question other than what is why <laughs> that, why that am too. i doing this we ask <laughs> ourselves the same thing here. every single day so in in your long career in in broadcasting what words of wisdom can you give to somebody who may actually still want to get into this business. <laughs> I should have been a fry cook. That, that's that's, that, you know, that's you know, like it. the bongo drum repairman. No, no, no. no. There's, there's no future in bongo drums, but fry cook, people will always need to eat. You're absolutely right about that. No, listen, here's, here's what I tell people graduating J school, because they all want to be the next Robin Roberts. Right. And there's only one Robin Roberts. And there's only a thousand television station newsrooms, but there's... 11,000 radio stations, and there's much more opportunity in radio than there is in TV. Plus, look at some of the greats that are in TV. They all started in radio. Don't be silly. Go where the job is. Learn your craft. Get great. And if you want TV, it'll be there for you. Plus, radio is way more fun than TV. We seem to have a few good days here. Yeah, yeah. we do. We do. We have a good time. Yeah. And you don't have to wear makeup. 
and you don't have to wear a tie, and you don't have to wait till six o'clock to do the news because we do it twenty four seven. Mike, Mike, no, no one told us that, Mike, that we don't have to wear makeup. <laughs> I've been wearing this tie every single day for the last seven years. Oh, no, this is the first time we've learned about that. Yeah, but it's the mascara that the audience doesn't recognize with the two of you guys. How has the business changed since you started? Um, well, when I started, I never thought I'd have a four hundred one k. <laughs> yeah. When I started, I never... Wait, wait, have you seen the 401k lately? You may not have one. <laughs> it's fine. Right, so, you know. Don't a 201k. <laughs> I never think, you know, I mean, I worked, I knew the owner. I knew the owner's wife. The owner's kid was the overnight board op. You know, it was family owned and everybody was a part of this. And while this may be a company that is run by David Field and his dad at one time, there are thousands of employees and radio stations across the country. That was one radio station in Pinellas Park, Florida, and that was really family owned. Something special about this one right here? Yeah. This this the, what's special about this one is the people, uh, you guys, the people in the newsroom, um, Julie, our news director, Feldman, you, just me. <laughs> you know, He's speechless you know, over if, here. If, if, if I'm the father of in depth, you're the godfather of in depth because it, this show was invented at Johnny's Pizza, which is gone across the street. When I said. I have an idea. I want to create a show, and Charles Feldman is going to be the host. And the market manager then, Dan Kearney, looked at me and goes, that's a great idea. And, and then you got indigestion from the pizza. Right? We did. Yeah, okay. but, but, but if you remember, you know, um, Ron Kilgore was the original host with you. Yeah. And he's kind of like the Keith Jackson of in-depth because, you know, Monday Night Football, Keith Jackson was the first year before Frank Gifford, which makes Mike Simpson Frank Gifford. <laughs> Which, by the way, makes you Howard Cosell, and that is as funny as it can get. Oh, no. You are the Howard Cosell of in-depth. I'm the Rune Arledge, and that's Frank Gifford, who apparently cheats on Katie Lee, and it's all messed up for that. Okay. (laughs) Why did we have him on? We already threw him a party. You asked. I've been drinking in my office all day. We had a segment to fill, and we're like, oh. We listen, were going to give him two. So Listen, I was going to go home at 12 o'clock. <laughs> you said stay till 2.15. I've been drinking since noon. So you're not retiring. No. What do you think you're going to end up doing? Driving my wife crazy, going to Carmel, and then we'll see. Um, L.A. was never in my dreams. L.A. was a place you went to vacation, you went to Disneyland, not to live. And when the opportunity came to work for CBS and KNX, it was too good to pass up. So seven years ago, we got on the 10, we took a left. Actually, we got on Interstate 10, took a left. About 2,000 miles later, it became the 10. (laughs) Yes, that's right. There's a sign that says, add the the. Which is, by the way, the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's the Interstate. It's 10. It's not the 10. But okay, fine. Do whatever you want. And (laughs) Now everyone will drive them out of town. (laughs) I had no idea how long I was going to be here. And after seven years and not seeing my family and my wife not seeing her family, we just feel like it's time. We've done amazing work as a team. Um, we've done amazing things. This show, um, you know, as, is one of the crown jewels of this radio station. Dick and Vicky, you and Karen, Greg, Mike, Joe, I mean, everybody on this radio station, Julie, have just been amazing. Um, and I'm really proud of what we've done. It's It's been incredible. So what am I going to do? I don't know. 
there's an axe somewhere, but that axe got to be closer to family. So I've drawn a box somewhere south of the Mason-Dixon line, somewhere east of Houston. That's where I'm going to show up. Well, without doubt, you've been, and I mean this not in a pejorative sense at all, you have been the most interesting person I've ever worked <laughs> worked for in my entire includes, career. And that includes and, Ted Turner? And that includes Ted Turner. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and I mean that in a very good way. You know, listen, I, I said this, everybody had, you know, we had a nice cake and pizza because that's my kind of a party. And I said this then and I say it now that the people of this radio station are very special to me and I love you all very much. And I'm honored and I am privileged to be a part of the history of this radio station. And it's something I will treasure and take with me forever. Of course, if I die tomorrow, then it's a short forever. <laughs> well, don't do that. <laughs> take it with you for a long time. I, I hope so. All right. Thank you. For coming in. Thanks for everything. Thanks for all the jobs. And uh, we'll keep it going. Yeah, you've got more than just one from me. I know, right? That's in-depth for today. Thank you, Ken Charles. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back Monday.